Turn your Bibles to Acts 21, Acts 21. As you turn there, I would say this, I was encouraged this week as I was thinking about this sermon, praying about the content of this passion, considering what to bring to you, the word of God to bring to you, I was blessed at how timely some of much of this is. Not because I planned it out, not because I mapped out uh, the series uh, to fall in a particular way on a particular Sunday, but because the Word of God and His Spirit was guiding all of this and bringing it about. And this passage addresses some of the challenges that we're facing right now. Challenges of how to make decisions, how to make choices, when the data seems to to lead in so many divergent ways, when people who are ordinarily in unison with one another seem to be going to different directions and drawing different conclusions. What do you do about this week? Do you get together with your family? You've got government agencies suggesting that that's unwise. And yet, Somehow leaving grandma alone by herself for an extended period doesn't seem great either. There seems to be no clear-cut way to go. What do we do? How do we make a decision? Wouldn't it be nice if the Bible spoke in clear, direct ways to every such circumstance? Scott, thou shalt visit grandma this Thanksgiving. I wish that was there. It would really, really help. Becky wishes it had said, thou shalt not marry Scott. It would have really, really helped. There are these decisions we make for which there is not the kind of clear guidance we might want. And so we consult others who don't always agree with each other. And it doesn't get us anywhere. It doesn't help us. And we're left trying to figure out what to do. As we consider this text, as I prepare to read the Word of God, we're going to see here some amazing, almost contradictions in how the people of God disagreed with each other, could not come to the same conclusion. And hopefully we're going to be strengthen and encourage as we wrestle with our own challenges about making decisions. Here at the Shore Harvest Presbyterian Church, we believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. And among other things, that means this, that if you want to know how to make decisions in difficult times, if you want to know how to to, uh, move forward and discern the will of God, then you have to know his word. So I invite you now to listen as I read Acts 21, beginning in verse 1. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a a, a ship crossing uh, to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. 
And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and, and, were, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to uh, uh, Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from uh, Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do, therefore, what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality." Then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. Lord, we do ask your guidance and understanding it, your uh, 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 indispensable um, work in receiving it, that we would hear your message to us and that you would apply it to our hearts and our minds and our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is an interesting uh, set of texts. These back-to-back accounts, the first one being of some of the details of Paul's journey from Miletus in in western modern-day Turkey down to Jerusalem. And then the second one being some of the initial activities, things that occurred once he arrived in Jerusalem. 
And I want to take a, a moment, we're going to talk a little bit about just some of the details that are involved in, in each of these different scenes, just so we understand the facts, the things happening in each of these scenes. After which, I'd like to try to draw out some of the conclusions that we find here, some of the principles by which we might be guided as we try to live the Christian life when there are difficult decisions to be made. So first of all, the, the first scene, if you will, this, this travel from Miletus to Jerusalem, let's consider some of the things that, go, that happen here. First of all, we get a detailed account of some of the, the places. They sail from Miletus to a place called Kos, and then to the island of Rhodes, and then to Patera. And then they see Cyprus. They don't land on Cyprus, but they keep it on their left. In other words, they sailed south of Cyprus. And by the way, there is a map as we conclude Paul's third missionary journey. There's a map in your bulletin that may help you follow some of these details here. They sail south of Cyprus and they come to the city of Tyre and they stay there for seven days. And as we've said before, one of the things we get out of this level of detail is just a reminder of the historicity of the book of Acts, that it is a book of facts, of true events, of true people in true places. These things really happened. It is not a mythology or, or, or fiction or any attempt to create a story, but it is the truth of what happened. Their entire, we see that they, uh, verse 4, entire, we see that through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, we're not yet made clear who they were, but these believers entire, these Christians in this city were saying, you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. We've heard that you're going to be in trouble. You're going to be arrested. There's a plot to kill you afoot in Jerusalem. You should not go. And a couple of things we must note, if we're going to make sense of this, we must note that they did not speak on their own. This was not their idea. What does the text, what does the inspired word of God say about why they said what they said? Through the Spirit. They spoke in accord with the Spirit of God. That trouble awaits you in Jerusalem. Don't go. And Paul says, we're going anyway. He doesn't pack up and turn north to Antioch. He doesn't get back on the boat and sail back to Miletus. He gets on a different boat and heads south toward Jerusalem. It's an interesting thing that in the face of a word from the Spirit, he continues on his path. We then see them land. They, they stop in Ptolemaeus for a day and then on to uh, Caesarea. We, uh, we've heard of Caesarea before in the book of Acts. This is the home of Cornelius. Remember the first Gentile to become a, a believer, at least the first one recorded in the, in the, in the gospel? I mean, sorry, in the, in the book of Acts. Um, this is the same place. This is an important city in that ancient uh, world, um, Caesarea. They land there. And it's interesting. They stay with Philip. We note some things there. So first of all, we see Philip the evangelist. We tend to think of Philip as one of the, uh, the initial deacons, and he was. It notes that he's one of the seven. He was one of the first deacons. But what, what Luke notes first about him is he's the evangelist. And you'll recall back in Acts chapter 8 that Philip uh, was key in the evangelism of Samaria. He was a leading voice in bringing the gospel to the Samaritans. 
And then, of course, many of us know the story of Philip uh, 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 teaching the, the Ethiopian, the man from the court of Ethiopia who was reading the book of Isaiah and was confused about what it meant. And Philip guides him into an understanding that Isaiah was foretelling Jesus of Nazareth. Philip, the evangelist. This is a godly man. We also note that uh, uh, he's got four daughters who prophesy. Luke, again, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is not, he does not note what they prophesied falsely. He does not note that they were rogue prophets. He just says plainly, they're, they're prophetesses. They brought revelation from God. Remember, at this point, the, the written word of God was incomplete. And there was still, God did still speak through prophets. He still brought his word to his people through those who uh, were, were functioned as his mouthpiece. And Philip's daughters function as that. So we've got Philip the evangelist, one of the deacons. We've got four women who are verified godly prophets from God, prophetesses from God. We have Agabus. We saw Agabus back in Acts chapter 11. He's the one that foretold the famine that was to come in Jerusalem, and sure enough, it came. He is a verified prophet. And he acts out a scene, in much like Elijah or Isaiah or Jeremiah of the Old Testament, how these guys would, would act out a prophecy. He acts out the prophecy. He takes the, the big piece of cloth that was wrapped around, that, that Paul kept around his midsection to kind of keep all the robes gathered up nice and tight. Agabus walks up, pulls that off from the Apostle Paul, wraps it around his feet, wraps it around his hands, and says, this is what's going to happen to the owner of this belt. He's going to be bound up. And then Luke makes something interesting. Notice the word we. We. Luke is with them at this point. And Luke says, we begged Paul not to go. Who else is part of that we? Probably Timothy. Timothy is, from all we can tell, Timothy is still with them on this journey. He would later be left in Ephesus as the church's pastor, but he's still a pretty young man at this point. We don't think he was left to be the pastor of Ephesus until about 10 years later after this, these events. Eight years, maybe. So who do we have here? Think about this. This is Philip, one of the original deacons, an evangelist, a key founder of the early church. This is Luke the writer of almost half of the New Testament, a man inspired by God. This is Timothy, who would go on to be an, a, a key pastor of one of the most important churches in the early church. This is Agabus, a verified prophet, and four women who are testified by, to, by Luke as prophetesses. These, if there ever were to be saints with a capital S, this is it. If you're going to paint their pictures, you might as well put halos on them. This is a pretty important group. And they are telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. And he says, I'm going anyway. I'm going anyway. You're breaking my heart. I wish you'd stop. I wish you would stop pleading with me because it's making it harder. But I'm going anyway. And you know, in the midst of all of this, Paul never says, by the way, you're wrong. Your prophecies are incorrect. That's not good. Paul's already said 
He's already admitted that the Spirit's revealed to him these things. He knows that his life is at risk if he goes to Jerusalem. And yet he says, I'm going to go anyway. There's some of the outline of some of the details of the first scene. The travel to Jerusalem. Now let's look at the scene number two uh, in, in verses 15 to 26. What happens once he gets to Jerusalem? James, the, the leader of the Jerusalem church, the half-brother of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he, along with the other elders, they confront Paul. They welcome him initially. They say, we're glad you're here. Oh, but by the way, we need to let you know what's going on. And they throw a little weight around. Look at, we've got thousands. You got your converts, Paul? Well, we got converts here. We got thousands who have come to know Jesus as Savior among the Jews here in Jerusalem. And by the way, Paul, there's a rumor going around about you. And that rumor is this, that you're out there denying Judaism. You're out there denying the law of Moses. You're eating bacon. You're you're touching things that are unclean. You're enjoying your cheeseburgers. You're doing all the things you shouldn't be doing as a Jew. Now, by the way, is that actually true? It really isn't. You'll recall that Paul never once tells Jews not to be Jewish. He tells Jews not to require Gentiles to be Jewish. He says, we should not force our Judaism on Gentiles. But what did he do when he first took Timothy with him in the ministry? What's the first thing he did? He circumcised Timothy for the sake of the Jews. Paul's, so what's being said here is not true about Paul. And moreover, even if it was true, he would have every right to say, yeah, that's all been set aside. But that's not what he does. That's not what happens here. James says to him, what we need you to do is go be publicly Jewish. We need you to go and do a public Jewish act. You've been traveling to Gentile lands. It is the custom of Jews that when you return from Gentile lands, you, go, you purify yourself before entering the temple. Go do that. Paul says, okay, and we see that he did purify himself later down there in the text. And he said, there's one other thing. Here among these believing, these, these Messianic Jews, these Jesus followers here in Jerusalem, we've got four men who are under a vow, probably a Nazarite vow, but we're not certain. They're under this Nazarite vow. They haven't cut their hair in a long time. We'd like you to pay for their haircuts. It seems like a strange way to be Jewish, doesn't it? There's a little more going on than that. To conclude their vow, they need to make a sacrifice at the temple. And they're saying, why don't you pay for their sacrifices? When they go to the temple, go with them. Out of your pocket, buy the sacrifices they need and provide them. And at first glance, there are all kinds of problems with this. For it seems to keep in place a sacrificial system that needn't be in place, given that the one good sacrifice, the one acceptable sacrifice has been made. On theological grounds, Paul could have said, no, I will not be party to this uh, sacrificial system. You guys, yes, it's okay to be Jewish, but you can't keep the parts of Judaism that are just flat out false. They pointed forward to the Christ. The Christ has come. We don't need them anymore. But he doesn't say that. 
He could have said, listen, I am free from the law. I have been set free from enslavement to the law. I don't have to do this. I can eat all the bacon cheeseburgers I want to eat. I can have as many Maryland crabs as I can possibly stuff in. The shellfish is okay. He doesn't do that either. He says, okay. I will do what you're asking. There's an amazing thing that's happening right here. Paul says, I understand that the freedom I've been given in Christ is not freedom to do whatever I want, but freedom from doing what I want. I'm no longer enslaved to myself. I'm no longer enslaved to sin. I've been set free from my slavery to sin so that I might serve Jesus. He says, I will give up my personal freedom. In his commentary on this section, F.F. Bruce has this incredible quote. Um, There it is. The heart which is truly emancipated in Christ is not enslaved to its own emancipation. The heart that is truly uh, emancipated in Christ is not enslaved to its own emancipation. Stop and think about that for a moment. What Professor Bruce is saying is this. If you are always driven by your freedom, I have the right. I have the freedom. I can eat bacon cheeseburgers if I want to. If you are always driven by declaring your right and your freedom, you're not free. You're enslaved to your rights. And Bruce reminds us that freedom in Christ is freedom to obey Christ, freedom to sacrifice as Christ sacrificed, freedom to put others first, freedom to truly please God and be set free from self. You know, Paul wrote the book of Corinthians before these events took place. And in Corinthians chapter 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we read, and I'm not going to read the entire uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 9, but here are some highlights from it. He opens the chapter by saying, am I not free? It's a rhetorical question. Of course, I am free. And he says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas do? And then in verse 12, he says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. And then he goes on a little later, he says, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And the next verse he says, but I have made no use of these rights. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. And now Paul is living this out right there in Jerusalem, saying, I am not going to put my rights first. That's not what it's about. One of the the challenges, one of the things that we 
that we find in, the, in, in our world today is this constant tension between what I want and what the others want. And one of the things that we tend to default to in America as Americans is fighting for the rights. But one of the calls of the gospel on us is to fight against our rights and to fight for self-sacrifice, to fight for being willing, to kill the spirit of sin in us, to slay the old man that says, I have a right, and to pursue a desire to serve others. This is one of the reasons that beginning next Sunday, we're instituting a new requirement here at Shore Harvest. If you look at page two of the bulletin, the bottom paragraph there, we've changed one word. It says, during the pandemic, we are asking that we respect one another with proper distancing before, during, and after the service. Face masks are required before and after the worship service. Thank you. The elders met and we wrestled with this and we said, you know what? We have the freedom to submit. We have the freedom to serve others and to put others before ourselves. And we are going to exercise that freedom by following the guidance to wear these masks. Not today, we understand, you didn't know, you may not have a mask, nothing. But beginning next week, we're asking that before and after the service, everyone wear a mask. An opportunity to put in place the principle we see Paul espousing here. So we've seen Paul on the road to Jerusalem where he will not listen to the saints that are with him. He will not adhere to their advice. He defies what seems like good advice. Save your life, don't go to Jerusalem. And by the way, he's done that already, right? The riot in Ephesus, Paul wanted to go to the riot and try to speak to the crowds, and the disciples dissuaded him and he didn't go. So this is advice he's listened to in the past, and now he doesn't listen to it. And then we see Paul in Jerusalem being given advice that seems really, really bad. Go be a Jew. Go act like a Jew. And he listens to it. We've got two very contradictory things happening in this text. So what are the principles that we draw? What are the, the guiding, uh, the, the things that we draw out of this to help guide how we live? And I'm going to, at this point, admit I'm going to give thanks to Pastor Kevin DeYoung at this point. I think these are almost verbatim out of him. I tried to reward. I couldn't do better. I couldn't do better. So I'm just going to use what he had and share with you some principles from this text. First of all, sometimes good, godly people will draw different conclusions from the same data. Good, godly people will draw different conclusions from the same data. Luke and Paul disagree about what should happen. Should he go to Jerusalem or not go to Jerusalem? Timothy and Paul disagree about whether or not he should go to Jerusalem. Philip and Paul disagree about whether or not he should go to Jerusalem. And they have exactly the same data. By the power of the Spirit, each has been told that he faces danger in Jerusalem. And yet they draw differing conclusions. It's not a question of, you know, Paul, if you just understood, if we just gave you a little more information, then we can persuade you. 
that have exactly the same data. The book of church order, you know, that little blue binder you see me holding up here during baptisms and new membership and that kind of stuff. The book of church order opens with a statement about the fact that, that the, Christ is the head of the church, not the elders, Christ. And that goes into the founding principles of our book of order and of our denomination. And the fifth of those has always resonated with me. The fifth founding principle is this. While it is necessary to make effective provision that all who are admitted as teachers be sound in the faith. Okay, let's, we, we got to make sure your pastors know the word of God. Goes on to say, but there are truths and forms with respect to which men of good character and principles may differ. In all these, it is the duty both of private Christians and societies to exercise mutual forbearance toward each other. I don't know if you're dealing with this. Here's what we got going on in the Shaw family right now, the extended Shaw family. I have two siblings. Among the three of us, we have managed to uh, uh, map out all three possible responses to COVID. One of us is saying, hey, let's get together over the holidays. One of us is saying, nope, we shouldn't get together over the holidays. And the other one is going, I don't know what to do. You know what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to respect one another. We all got the same data. We're all looking at the same newspaper articles, hearing the same reports. And we're going to have to just respect one another. And we're going to have to live with the decisions that each makes. Understanding that though they make the decision that I might disagree with, it doesn't make them wrong. And we see that in the text here. That Paul and Luke disagree with each other. And there's nothing said about one of them being wrong and one of them being right. They just disagree. How hard that is. We always think that if we just could give them more information, then they would be convinced to my position. If we could just uh, uh, argue the point a little more clear, they'd be convinced to my position. And the default one I always love to fall back into is just get louder. And then they'll be convinced of my position. And what we see here is brothers deciding to live in unity, even when they disagree with each other. Sometimes good, godly people will draw different conclusions from the same data. Principle number two, sometimes you have to ignore what everyone else is saying. Sometimes you have to ignore what everyone else is saying. Do you see that here, Paul? He's heard from Timothy. He's heard from Luke. He's heard from Philip. He's heard from Agabus. He's heard from the four prophetess daughters. And yet he says, I can't abide by what you're saying. And we're not even told why, by the way. And I think that's by design. I think the Spirit wants us to, to recognize that we, this isn't about figuring out the principle that was in Paul's heart. Ah, oh, that's when you can ignore. No, it's the idea that there are going to be times you're just going to have to do that. Because we're never told exactly. Paul's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. He wants to get to Jerusalem, but we're not 100% certain why. Yes, he's taken up the collection for the church in Jerusalem, but he could have sent that on with somebody else. He doesn't need, he's got Philip, one of the deacons. I mean, that's a deacon's job. Hand the money to Philip, let Philip take the money to, to Jerusalem. He wants to get down there maybe for, the, for, the, for the, 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 the Pentecost, but it never actually comes out and says that. That's why he's going. 
We don't know why, but for some reason he's convicted and convinced by the Spirit that he has to go. Sometimes you have to ignore what everyone else is saying. Young people in particular, this is hard. Everybody, all your friends, all the people on social media. And by the way, I'm not defining what is young. You decide if you're in that category. There is that pressure to be like and do what everybody else is doing. Sometimes you've got to ignore it. The third principle is this. Sometimes you have to listen to what everyone else is saying. You know, one mark of immaturity as a Christian is always listening to the crowd. One mark of immaturity as a Christian is never listening to the crowd. If you are never going to listen to the advice of anyone else, if you're never going to hear what others have to say, that doesn't make you principled. That doesn't make you steadfast. It probably means you're a grumpy old curmudgeon. That's what that means. And Paul gets to Jerusalem, and he listens to James and the elders. And he does what they say and follows their advice. So one of the challenges here is sometimes we have to ignore what others are saying, but sometimes we got to listen to what others are saying. A fourth principle at work here, sometimes the hard way is the right way. Sometimes the hard way is the right way. Paul has bailed out before, but this time he's going to face the looming persecution. He is going to do that which is difficult. You know, this one's tough for us. It's always difficult to follow the difficult way because it's difficult. I don't want to confront my brother. I don't want to admit I was wrong. I don't want to do this or that or the other thing because they're hard. But sometimes the hard way is the right way. And sometimes the easy way is the right way. We've already seen where in Ephesus he does not go risk his life. He lives to fight another day. He lives to continue the ministry that the Spirit had given him. He chooses to, we've seen him lowered down the wall of a city to escape the, the, the persecution. We've seen him dodge things. It's foolishness to just say to yourself, I'm always going to follow the hard way. I'm always going to do the most dangerous thing. I know I'm walking in the will of God if I've put my life at maximum risk. Well, by that logic, have your five-year-old drive home today. Doing the dangerous thing doesn't mean you're walking in the will of the Lord any more than doing the, the, the easy thing means that. So sometimes we've got to take the hard way, and sometimes we've got to take the easy way. Sometimes we're called to be steadfast and inflexible. Boy, that's one of the things the world really hates about Christianity. Sometimes we're called to be steadfast and inflexible. There are certain things for which there is no wiggle room. They're probably not as many as we think. And a good rule of thumb might be the ecumenical creeds. If it's in the Apostles' Creed, if it's in the Nicene Creed, pretty good chance I shouldn't be wiggling on that. I got no room to play with the Trinity of our God. I've got no room to play with the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. There is, I got no room to play with the final judgment and the final resurrection. Those are hard set facts. 
and I need to be inflexible and steadfast on them. Paul said, I have been told to go to Jerusalem. The Spirit has commanded that I have got to go, and I am not going to give in on that. And yet sometimes we need to give a little. Sometimes we need to give a little. And we see Paul doing that once he gets in Jerusalem. Here's a letter that uh, John Calvin, John Calvin wrote to some French refugees who had, were in a new town. They had escaped the persecution in France and they were in a new town and they were looking for a church. And the only church they found, uh, basically a small town, and there was two choices. There was the Catholic church and there was the Protestant church. But the Protestant church wasn't Protestant enough. It still had a lot of residual Catholicism in it. They were, they were wearing weird garments on special days, and they were burning candles all over the place, and they were doing things that weren't particularly Protestant. And so they wrote to John Calvin and said, what do we do? Do we branch out and start our own church? What do we do in the midst of this? I want to read a portion of Calvin's letter of response. We do not hold lighted candles in the celebration of the Eucharist, nor figured bread. They were doing weird things. Rather than just having plain old bread, they were making it all, oh, it's got to be mystical and special shaped and everything else. We do not hold lighted candles and figured bread to be such indifferent things. In other words, Calvin says, we admit, this is a big deal. They're messing with the Lord's table. This is not a small thing. We don't hold this to be indifferent. We do not hold them to be such indifferent things that we would willingly consent to their introduction or approve of them. See what he's Calvin saying? Yeah, I don't want that in my church. Though we object not to accommodate ourselves to the use of them, where they have been already established when we have no authority to oppose them. If we were called upon to receive such ceremonies, we should ourselves, uh, we should be ourselves bound according to the position which God hath placed us, to admit of no compromise in resisting their introduction and in maintaining constantly the purity which the church confided to us already possesses. You go, uh, skip down. Um, and, and when it would be for us a matter of deep regret, if the French church might be erected there, should be broken up because we would not accommodate ourselves to such, some ceremonies that do not affect the substance of the faith. For as we have said, it is perfectly lawful for the children of God to submit to many things of which they do not approve. Now, the main point of consideration is how far such liberty should extend. Upon this Head, let us lay it down as a settled point that we ought to make mutual concessions in all ceremonies that do not involve any prejudice to the confession of our faith, and for this end that the unity of the church be destroyed by our excessive rigor. John Calvin, the reformer, the one who cared a great deal about what worship looked like, who wanted it purified, said, if this is the only church in town that you can attend, then attend it. Worship with them. Join in them. Don't undercut them and weaken them by disunity. Yes, if we were starting afresh with a clean slate, we would do none of those things. But they're there, and you have no authority to overturn them. You're not an elder in that church. You're not a pastor in that church. You can't do anything about it. So join with them. Sometimes we have got to give a little. It's not easy. At this point, if you've been taking notes in particular, you're glancing back over those notes and you're saying, Pastor, you have simply contradicted yourself at every turn. 
It's like the fortune teller who says, you're going to meet somebody or not. I'm covered either way, right? So how is this helpful? It's fascinating, it's interesting, but how, Pastor, is it helpful? Because you haven't told us one thing upon which we can make the difficult decision. So let's boil it down. Let's bring it home. It really comes down to this. The Christian life is not a life for robots. We were not called to be machines. There are not set pre-programming by which you just do this and then this and then turn here and then do this and then do this. That's not the life we were given. That's not a life of growing closer to and understanding our Lord. I had a job some years back where I was a, 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 a lieutenant in, a, in, a, in an institution organization um, in, in which the, the, the boss, the, the, the guy in charge, for a time was not giving me a lot of room to do anything, and I got a little frustrated. I felt hemmed in. But over time, what began to happen is I began to understand him better, as I began to watch him and observe him and see how he did things, I began to realize this is probably what he'd want me to do in this situation. And as I began to make those decisions that aligned with his will for the institution and the organization, he began to give me more freedom. I had to grow to understand what my boss wanted. And in growing to understand what my boss wanted, it became easier to make decisions. That's what we see here, is that it is only growing in the Lord that is going to guide us through these sorts of things. It is only when we have a heart for the gospel and a head full of wisdom that we are going to know how to proceed in difficult circumstances. For that passage from 1 Corinthians 9, where we saw that Paul gave up his rights, let's revisit that and now read a few of the lines I skipped over. So in verse 5, he says, we, you know, do we not have the right to do these things? And then he says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. I read that earlier. Now he says, why? But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. He says, I've given up my rights for the sake of the gospel. His heart is for the gospel. Now, we don't know the gospel reasons that he was so uh, steadfast in going to Jerusalem. But given what we know about Paul, we can be assured that's why he ignored Luke and Philip and Agabus and the four daughters. Not because he was arrogant, not because he was proud, not because he was self-led, but because he knew that for the sake of the gospel, I have to go to Jerusalem. Later in that same passage in 1 Corinthians uh, 9, he says, you know, uh, to those under the law, I became as one under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. When the decisions are difficult, the first thing we have to ask ourselves is, which decision will advance the gospel? How do I serve the gospel? 
Do I visit family or not visit family? Do I wear a mask in this setting or not wear a mask in this setting? Do I make this decision or that decision? Do I go to this thing or... Which one will best serve the gospel? And that will clear up some of these hard situations. But it won't clear them all up. And it brings us around to the second part. We have got a head. We've got to have a head of wisdom. A heart for the gospel and a head of wisdom. We've got to know the word of God so that whatever principles might apply, we can apply them. But with our heart set on the gospel, our head filled with the word of God and his wisdom, we then need to relax and trust him. We need to join in what the disciples said to Paul as they were leaving Caesarea. The will of the Lord be done. The will of the Lord be done. Disagree with you, Paul, but the will of the Lord be done. Let the will of the Lord be done. Now, one of the things that's strange in the Bible is the command to be thankful at all times. Here we are on the, 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 the cusp of Thanksgiving. We're told to be thankful for all times and in all situations and all difficulties. And I sometimes scratch my head going, what am I to be thankful for in the midst of this? But one of the things we forget, we often go into these hard times and we say, Lord, give us wisdom. Forgetting that's what he's doing. In the midst of the difficult circumstance, he's giving you wisdom. Do you debrief after the difficult circumstances? Do you look back and say to yourself, wow, blew that one. What am I going to do differently next time? What am I going to do differently next time? That's growing in wisdom. Thank you, Lord, for the hard circumstances. Thank you for the trying times. Let my heart be filled with your word and your gospel and let my head be guided by those things and learn from these experiences. Thank you for the trying times so that next time I'll be better equipped to serve you. Next time I'll be better able to execute your wisdom for your glory for your gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we are not thankful for the trials you put us through. We beg you to take us out from underneath these trials. We, we hope that you won't make us keep facing them, and yet we see, we're reminded that it is through these trials that we grow in wisdom. It is through these trials that we are sanctified. It is through these trials that we come to know you better and have your heart for the gospel, and our heads filled with your wisdom. So, Lord, give us patience in the midst of difficult times. Let us bear with one another. Accept the fact that we will not always agree, even when the same data is before us. And let us seek unity in those situations. Give each other much forbearance. Grant each other much grace. Strive each in our own way to, to find your wisdom. To live according to the gospel so that it might go forward. We ask this as we gather with our families in the coming days or we do not. 
We ask this as we uh, wrestle as a church on how to respond to, to certain events in culture or not. We ask this for us as individuals, as families, as households, as a church, so that your name would be glorified, your gospel would go forward. We pray this in Christ. Amen.